The month of May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month in the United States, or AAPI Heritage Month for short. AAPI communities are comprised of some 50 distinct ethnic groups who speak over 100 languages, and whose ancestries can be traced to Chinese, Indian, Japanese, Filipino, Vietnamese, Korean, Hawaiian, and other Asian and Pacific Islander nations and identities. According to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, ethnic and communal identity is considered a notable protective mental health factor for many people who identify as AAPI. And yet, there remain a lot of barriers to accessing mental health care for those who identify as AAPI. Only 20% of Asian adults with a mental illness received treatment in 2020, according to research. As a future mental health counselor myself, I really want to be a part of a new story of increased and equitable mental health care access for all. But for now, with this podcast, I figure one small way to contribute to that new story would be by elevating and showcasing some of the stories of our past guests who identify as AAPI to celebrate AAPI Heritage Month for ourselves. From the New Story Company, this is The New Story Is a podcast that explores the stories, perceptions, and ideas that have come to shape the world today as we know it. Along the way, we speak to talented guests who are championing the new stories that may shape our collective future for the good. I'm Dave Ursillo. Today, we are celebrating AAPI Month by listening back to two conversations with past guests on the show, who identify as AAPI and who told us that they would love to be featured in this celebratory best of episode. First, let's hear from Dr. Han Ren, licensed clinical psychologist and educator based in Austin, Texas, who joined us last October to discuss what it means to decolonize mental health. We pick up our conversation with Han's personal story and talk a bit about some of the shared experiences that immigrant families and their children tend to navigate when attempting to adjust to a new life in a new culture. I would actually really love to ask you about your own story and how you mm -hmm. came to be as you are today, what we call a helping professional as a psychologist, um, and one who on top of it all has a growing reputation, a growing platform as a thought leader, as an advocate, as an educator uh, in the mental health space. So Tell us a little bit, if you wouldn't mind, please, about your story and how you came to find yourself as a, as a helping professional today doing what you're doing. Yeah, so I, um, I'm, a, I'm a first generation immigrant, but like, like, like 1.5 generation and that I immigrated to the U.S. when I was five and from China. Um, and my parents had immigrated before that because my dad had come for grad school and like the laws at that time allowed people to bring their partners, but not their whole families. Um, so I had a lot of pretty significant attachment disruptions in my early childhood when my parents left China, when I left me in the care of my grandparents. And then when I left China and my grandparents, who were the only caregivers that I remembered to join them in the U.S. And so, you know, all of that, like kind of early childhood set to the world was not ideal um, and left me feeling really unmoored in my childhood. Um, and then my parents were also struggling with a lot of, you know, new immigrant stuff of trying to survive in this 
country and um, you know provide physically, but maybe not able to provide emotionally and um, relationally. So I always felt like something's really off about my childhood. Um, and as I got older, I became more and more interested in psychology because I could see like the impacts of this on myself and on my family. Um, and, you know, therapy really is a field that brings a lot of people to it because we want to understand ourselves and our, our families and our life a, a bit better. Um, and so I would say that that was a big driving force for me. Um, but I think along the way, I also realized how rare it is for Asian Americans to be focused on mental health. It is not a common thing. It is still highly stigmatized in our communities. And, um, like for no reason. Um, I mean, for, yes, for lots of reasons, but like, no, like, you know, they're all like culturally entrenched reasons and stigma and, and, you know, um, the, it just, our community deserves more. So really feeling the pull there of being able to speak out and, um, advocate for what good mental health care looks like for, um, Asian Americans and normalizing it for people, um, that's been a big part of my, my journey and my, my passion for like having any sort of you know, visibility or, or public platform. Um, there's just a lot of whiteness in the healing modalities too, and being able to bring some different voices and perspectives to that, that is more culturally grounded and respectful of, um, you know, immigration experiences and, um, the unique identities that we carry. Yeah. What was your education experience like? Because you, when you talk about your story now and you mentioned like your attachment issues, like with, with your parents and being left with your grandparents for, for a number of years, I think you said it was, um, did you, was this always a part of your self-knowledge? Was it talked about, about how you, you experienced these pretty dramatic changes in your, your young life as a 1.5 generation immigrant, like you say, um, or was it something that you gradually became aware of and began to unpack as you, you know, as you developed, as you grew and started to, to seek out, you know, mental health as a career, which came first, I wonder. Um, I mean, I think I always had the implicit visceral knowledge of like, this is weird. This is not um, a common experience. Um, this is not the type of relationship that my friends had with their parents um, and feeling, you know, kind of lonely in that. Um, but then it wasn't until I really began to understand it from, you know, theory based um, like learning about it in, in school and, and through my education that it like made a lot more sense. So, you know, it made a lot more contextual sense. But then like even through that, it was, it was really, you know, jarring at first because it's really easy to like kind of villainize people for like, why did you put me in that position? Like, you, you know, but then, you know, over the years, really understanding that from this like cultural frame of like, you know, everyone does the best they can with what they know and what they have. And this is what it was the best they could do. And this is what they knew. And so, you know, I don't have like resentment in that way around the experiences that, that I've, I've you know, lived with. Um, it's more just being able to ground that, that in the context of, you know, survival and culture and immigration was normalized and the amount of education that was there and just the things that, you know, we talked about. And like, 
more recently, as I'm connecting with other, you know, Asian American therapists and other, you know, people who are children of immigrants and understanding our collective stories, like really recognizing the impact of systemic trauma on just that whole generation. Like if you think about the Asian diaspora, like there was so much systemic trauma across, you know, Asian countries and cultures, you know, in the second half of the 1900s. And all of that have this ripple effect on um, relationships, attachment and um, on the next generation. Yeah, I'd love to talk to you about systemic trauma, because I think, as you mentioned in your previous answer, so much of mental health is centered in whiteness and, pre- and presumes whiteness in a certain like white, hetero, cisgender, nuclear family, Christian, um, you know, and on it goes, all the, all the privileged identities. And when we, you know, again, the royal we talk about trauma, I feel like a lot of times when we talk about it commonly, and I love the fact that trauma, like the language of trauma is in our lexicon now, we're sharing it, we're talking about what it means, what it is, what it isn't. I feel like oftentimes we refer to trauma, we think of the really um, clear cases of trauma, like like violence um, um, and- Big T, big T trauma. Big, the big T trauma, right? But and, and like the individual trauma, like trauma that affects a single person in a singular way. What is systemic trauma? And could you differentiate a little bit about why this is so important to understand beyond the lens of like hyper individualism? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think of, you know, systemic trauma as being a huge factor to complex trauma or a huge contributor to it. Um, You know, complex trauma is when bad things happen over and over again. And it's not like shock trauma, like one singular event. They're relational um, events. They are, you know, attachment-based or emotional neglect-based. And a lot of those things, you know, comes through in like the, you know, child-parent relationship. But why is there such like, um, tension there. A lot of the times it's because the parent is going through and living through their own systemic traumas. So when I think about my own story and my parents' um, traumas, like they were going through the cultural revolution before they had me. Like they were pulled out of their schools in middle school and sent to work in the countryside and for the great leap forward with, you know, Mao's agenda of the great re-education. And so they weren't allowed to attend any school and had to do this taxing physical labor. And then my, my own parents like studied on the side and like really tried to, you know, catch up academically without any instructions so they could take the tests and make it into the opportunity for higher education. And that takes a degree of like resolve and perseverance and grit that like, I can't even begin to wrap my mind around. And like, I'm so grateful for the fact that they did that because that's what allowed them the opportunity to immigrate and provide this better life for us. But at the same time, like what is the cost of that to their relational functioning, their emotional awareness, their ability to show up with, you know, attunement and presence to other people in their lives. They were very singularly focused on survival and that's what allowed them to survive. And so if you think about like, just a generation of people who immigrated with similar backgrounds and stories Um, or, you know, with refugee status, it's a a different flavor, but still survival at the forefront. 
what gets lost there and what is transmitted implicitly, generationally, that we are all kind of figuring out and picking up the pieces around. Yeah, well, thank you for that answer. And where my mind's going as I'm hearing you answer, Han, is the idea of systemic trauma and traumas that are passed on intergenerally, intergenerationally, just by nature of, like you mentioned, your grandparents being affected in a certain way during cultural upheaval, historic upheaval, that affecting your parents, your parents being affected in a certain way. You mentioned you yourself not being able to come with your parents because of a, a policy, right? An immigration policy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When we talk about systemic trauma and not differentiate it from like in a false dichotomy, like systemic versus like shock trauma and big uh, capital T trauma, um, like those singular event violence, acts of violence and things uh, and so forth. But talking about systemic trauma, what I hear is we're hitting on the story of interdependence and an appreciation for our respect for the interconnections that we don't just get born a perfect blank slate and try to, and like, and then that's it. Right. And then there's bad things that happen to us that we have to talk about in therapy for the rest of our lives that can happen. It does happen uh, far too much, but there's still this inherent interdependence where we are the product of our lineage and our family histories and what affects our, our families and our upbringings and our communities and our cultures do I have that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's all interconnected. And like, you know, understanding the hardships that our parents and ancestors went through doesn't negate or excuse the, you know, ways that we were mistreated. Uh, but it does explain a lot of that, you know, so you're able to gain some context and still have the feelings that you have about it. But, you know, grounding that in the context makes it a little bit easier to digest and process. It's not, you know, ahistorical, apolitical, someone was a bad person. It was, you know, all of these ripple effects and interconnectedness that like generationally led us to where we are. And we, you know, have some of that, those impacts and we will also transmit some of that, that impact to our offspring and, you know, the people that we come in contact with. It's all it's all interconnected. Yeah, and and is the the work that you're doing to help to advocate for like inform educate around systemic traumas um, and as well culture based healing? Are these forms, as you see it, of of decolonizing mental health, of of breaking the white supremacist hold on mental health? And could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so traditionally, like psych the field of psychology and psychiatry is very individualistic, Eurocentric, um, medical based model of, you know, psychopathologies. And that really tends to center the root of the problem within the individual, like this person is sick in the brain, and they need to take medicine or go to therapy or have these individual things happen to them to alter the way that, um, you know, they perceive the world. And so that ahistorical, apolitical approach really is reductionistic and, and um, you know, insufficient for a lot of people. And it also really excuses the inactions of the systems that have failed that person. Nobody is just like, you know, even people with like very genetically based, like, you know, serious mental illness, you know, have like, triggers that are catalysts for the development of this, for the manifestation of this. And there's certainly societal, more, you know, contextual factors that make their illnesses easier or more difficult to deal with. 
And, um, you know, by stripping a person of that context, it makes it quote, quote, like cleaner to like treat that person, but it also makes whatever gains like less likely to be generalizable, less likely to be lasting. And it doesn't give that person the ability to like maintain a system of care, a community that will allow them to have reciprocal wellness, you know, over time. Yeah. What? And so I'd love to ask you about that idea of a system of care, because obviously in our, again, in our hyper-individualistic society, we do focus very explicitly on the individual and individual care, which is, I think, intends to be a good thing, right? Like we don't want to just generalize. We don't want to make sweeping statements about what's good for all. Um, but in your work, I know, I know that you talk about culture-based healing and ideas of especially for people who have, who have suffered some sort of trauma around um, their, their, their historical culture, their, their cultural in which they were uh, under which they were brought up um, and referring to um, especially for like children of immigrants like yourself uh, and an immigrant like such as yourself, that there can be like a lot of like shame and trauma, small T traumas or, or big T traumas around like culture of origin. So I understand there's this idea that there are elements where of culture that somebody can maybe explicitly seek out or cultivate in their lives, um, especially if they've experienced shame or disconnect or trauma around their culture of origin. What is culture-based healing and how does that contribute to like a, a broader scope of personal healing through connection to community and to, um, to culture at large? Yeah. I mean, I, I think of this as like, you know, what the, the small becomes the large, right? Like if you are able to make connections with people in your life who can support and love you and have, you know, genuine reciprocity around, then you generally fare better. And so what does growing that circle look like and how do you build that community and how do you build that, you know, that is, interconnected around like your people where, where you have things in common with them, but also like around your lineage where you understand like how your community is forming and taking off in the context of your own lifespan and where you have traveled and your own diaspora story. And um, I really think of, you know, the, the iterative, like, um, no non-linear, like Adrian Marie Brown emergent strategy ways of like healing to be so hopeful in that way. You know, she talks about fractals, like you build these smaller communities and what you do there, like even if you're not able to replicate on this grand scale, like there are these ripple effects and you're able to like, you know, like what happens in small communities happens in big communities as well. And communities become culture over time. And especially with like digital spaces, like there's such a culture around what happens online that doesn't even have any physical, um, form. Uh, but there's still very real communities and very real culture that are um, attached to it. And so the ability to find a sense of belonging and a culture that you identify with and like people and connections that will, you know, support and amplify, you know, what it is that you're working towards, that is really hopeful and can be really healing and also can be really terrible on the other side, you know, when it's like based around hate, right? Like there's, you know, the good and the bad and the ugly that comes with it. But um, in, in a lot of ways, it can be super nourishing. That was my conversation with Dr. Han Ren. To listen to the rest of that interview, you can scroll through the archives 
of the show at thenewstory.is, that's thenewstory.is slash podcast, or click through the show notes to find a direct link to that episode. Next, let's revisit our February interview with Cher Hale. She's a writer, an entrepreneur, and a PR firm founder who joined us to share how she uses the media and public relations to help historically excluded authors and entrepreneurs take back narratives that have been traditionally told for them, not by them, in the media. But I wonder if as a starting point, we could talk about your intersectional identities a little bit, especially with how they informed your experience of media representation starting at a young age. What comes up for you? Yeah, the first story that comes to mind for you and your audience is that my mother was the product of a Taiwanese woman and a Black man who was in the Air Force stationed in Taiwan. And it wasn't until she was about 13 years old that they applied for citizenship in the U.S. And she didn't get approved until she was 20 years old. And when she came to the U.S., she came without her mother, without any family, and didn't speak any English. So she raised me in southern Michigan, uh, being bilingual, having these two lenses of culture, and wanting me deeply, deeply, deeply to be American and to not be Chinese, because that meant that I was I would stand out. And that sense of needing to be safe and not being able to stand out or to be seen or to be heard felt very deeply embedded in how she expected me to behave. Not because she wanted me to be quiet or not a critical thinker, right? She wanted me to be all of those things. But in her mind as an immigrant, I think that safety was her first priority. There were very few families in this town where we lived. um, And we stood out. I can't hide what I look like, and neither could she. But she looked much more Black than she looked Asian. And to that point, growing up in Taiwan as a Black woman who spoke Chinese, she always stood out. And so I think that informed her experience of how she decided to teach me about who I am or how we behave in society. Yeah. And and I love how you specify, Cher, the the, the important word, the one that like rang in my ears as I heard you was safety, right? The idea and the importance of... um, or the pressure, I should say, safety is, of course, one of the most paramount things that anyone, any human being can feel and deserves to feel, right? It's most, one of the most basic human rights. But the idea uh, uh, or the, the amount of pressure that comes with needing to, wanting to, deserving to feel safe when you stand out as different in a culture or a society that continually shares your dif- differentness back to you or mirrors your differentness back to you or marginalizes that differentness. I can't imagine how much pressure that must have put on, in this case, your mother in wanting, as, a, as a, any mother does, to try to keep you safe and wanting you to therefore become American, to become or, or to integrate or to uh, conform or to erase maybe your, your culture, what kind of, uh, how did you experience that? I've, I've had conversations with, especially, um, 
first generation East Asian Americans who have who have shared some of the pressures that they felt. I wonder for you how you experienced that pressure and if it puts you in, I believe it's called like sometimes called like a being a third culture kid where you're not completely your first culture, you're not completely American culture, you're kind of navigating these worlds in between. Is that something you relate to as well? Definitely. I've always felt like I existed in a liminal space, right? Between two worlds. And so that's probably why I turned to novels and to writing as a form of trying to understand the world and trying to understand myself and to see like where I really belong, like where I fit in within the narratives that we have uh, available to us. But I think you bring up a good point about there, there was a lot of pressure to be like the ideal child, the ideal immigrant child in this situation. Um, and I really wanted to understand Chinese culture. Like I really had a thirst and a curiosity for it. And I could tell she always begrudgingly shared those things with me. Um, there would be some like language lessons, but never too many. <laughs> some concepts about like Lunar New Year, but never too many. And I think that this idea of me needing to belong was just very, very important to her. So as an adult now who has a daughter, I have a two-year-old who is multicultural as well in a predominantly white area. <laughs> uh, I have made a point to really introduce uh, the Chinese culture to her so that she always remembers where she came from. And I think that now as children, even in this area, it's much easier to be multicultural than it used to be. Because I grew up in the 90s, right? And it was not cool to bring kimchi to school. It was not cool to share pineapple cakes with your friends. <laughs> But now it's much more accepted and understood. Yeah, it's it's funny. Like I, I am a fourth generation American of European ancestry, of Irish and Italian ancestry. So the Italian part, we might come back around to that. We might talk a little bit about some Italian culture later for reasons that our listeners will will discover, um, perhaps later on in our conversation if we get there, because we we got a lot of ground to cover. But. It's, it's funny to me because, of course, I've never had the direct experience that you've had in any way, shape, or form. But I've had stories passed on from my parents through, through uh, as related from their parents and their parents' parents. So the pressures from my great-grandparents, who are, who are directly immigrants, arriving in the Northeast United States, being fair-skinned, but feeling like outsiders or being made to feel like outsiders because there, there was some anti-Italian, anti-Irish discrimination, which I wouldn't compare to other forms of discrimination, but still existing in a way. And the pressures that they were applied and felt to conform uh, and yet still retain some cultural identity. And the tension between that, right, of like retaining who you feel you are and what your lineage is and what matters to you, your values and um, and who your family is and, and who your, your, your people are, right? Um, but also wanting to... Uh, you know, um, to integrate and to become more and more American. And so you can see through my family lineage how the names of people changed and when they became Americanized and when it went from Carmine and Antonio to Stephen and David and, and how the language over time uh, was lost from the family that spoke only Italian and Italian and English to English and a very little bit of Italian to me where I speak only English and I can curse it fairly effectively in Italian American Italian um, only in moments <laughs> it, it kind of comes out but um, 
Yeah, so so I'm relating to some of the things that you were saying there, share. But what I wanted to bring in was your expression of feeling like you were in this liminal space, in existing between worlds, right? Of existing between the, these these different worlds um, that you were exposed to, and also trying to become a part of. And I love how you mentioned that you start think that you started to write to better understand yourself. It makes sense, like the the meaning making process that comes, especially with a slow and in introspective practice like writing as a fellow writer, I, I really relate to that. I wonder if as your, your experience with writing continued from a presumably a young age, if you found there to be a particular power or source of empowerment in being in that writing space of being in the creative space, the communicating space, the liminal space of bridging or tr- uh, trying to bridge these worlds together and finding perhaps that you had something to offer to communicate with others from being in this observing role, if that makes sense? Yeah, that's interesting. I actually relate more closely to the process of reading than I do writing, at least from when I was a child, because Mm -hmm. it felt to me like you could explore a range of emotion and experience in books that I didn't have access to as a child. And that I found really fascinating. Like I loved like most kids, the Wizard of Oz, right? Or like um, the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, where you could like walk through a door and go into a new world. And I found as I grew up and I began to read like more mature literature, um, that that sentiment remained though, that I, I still felt like I could just dip my toe into a whole new world and feel a range of human experience. And I wrote the entire time. I don't want to mislead you, right? I kept journals my whole life from the time I was like four or five up until now. Um, I also wrote short stories and I wrote a novel when I was 13. Like I wrote my entire life, but I never felt like I had the authority or the confidence to share that writing in a way that really, that felt safe. Um, I did take some creative writing classes, right? We did like, you know, like the workshop workshop style critiques. But even then, it just felt like I will never be good enough to actually publish a book or publish anything or or win a prize like you see so many writers doing. Um, and so that that kind of thought or that story belief was always in my head when it came to, could I ever really be a writer? And it's still something that I'm navigating today as I explore how my identity crashes into this idea of visibility, right? How visible do I think that I can be? How much space do I deserve to take up? Um, What kind of stories will people want to hear from me? Mm. There's, there's so many good threads that I want to try to grab some of these threads and like weave them with you a little bit for our listeners, because what I heard there, share is the word safe came up again, unsurprisingly, right? It's like, it's going to be a key theme when we're having a conversation about visibility and belonging and, and identities uh, and like outsider, insider, majority group, non-majority group kinds of identities. You mentioned visibility. Um, and and I can't help but, but remind our listeners that you work in public relations now, which is... <laughs> which is an art in, in visibility, right? In, in presenting one's work and one's expertise and authority into the world and in different ways. And I also can't help but think of, you, you mentioned questioning, doubting, wondering about the sense of authority or confidence that you had to share your writing and your stories. 
And I couldn't help but think about the internalized stories or experiences of oppression that tend to appear, we've talked about it a lot on this podcast in the last year, in a highly individualistic or sometimes maybe even toxic individualistic culture that would tell you perhaps that your fears or your discomfort or your self-questioning about your authority and confidence is internal and imply that it's your fault, right? The, the implication being, if you feel like you're small, everybody today uses the term imposter syndrome to refer to their self-doubts in a way that I think I was really relieved to hear for a long time. But now I go, is it really imposter syndrome that you're feeling or is it aspects of the world, culture, socialization, enculturation, telling you to stay small or reinforcing to you that if you get big or visible, that you're in physical danger. How have you navigated that those questions? And um, because I'm only speculating and, and kind of inferring things based on what I'm hearing, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about how those dynamics have played out a little bit for you as a creative, as a professional, and just as a human. Yeah, this is very deep well <laughs> of of reflection. I would say that it wasn't until probably my my mid-20s that I really began to find my voice. And it wasn't until I began to find my voice that I realized that I had always suppressed it. Mm. And that's an important distinction to make because up until then, I didn't believe that I had a visibility problem. I thought I was showing up in the way that I always wanted to show up. But the truth was that each experience that brought me to accepting my identity also brought me closer to lessening or shedding the layers that weren't actually me, to your point, right? Mm. Like, what thoughts do I have that come from white settler colonialist mentality? Mm -hmm. What thoughts do I have that come from capitalism or the patriarchy or sexism or any of these isms that we experience on a daily basis that we navigate? Uh, And the more that I began to unpack those, the more I saw, oh, this is how I want to tell this story. Oh, like this is how I can show up and give an opinion. Um, Because as a child, I remember being so scared to even raise my hand in class. Um, I was terrified of being wrong. So I thought that wrong equated to being bad. Mm. And so there was always this like, you know, need to be psychologically safe um, so that people wouldn't think that I was stupid. That I think held me back from saying, hey, can I have some feedback on this work? Or Mm. hey, can we like, brainstorm this together and like find solutions as a team instead of me thinking that I need to be the sole fountain of my creation. <laughs> right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of um, resistance with collaboration, with feedback, with sharing that came along with that needing to be safe because if people saw me and they didn't like it, then what would that mean about me? Mm, yeah. It's, it's interesting share. And I know you mentioned the deep well that we've been uh, kind of like pulling buckets from and, and it wasn't my intention to go this deep, this quick, but I thank you for joining me in, in the exploration for being so willing to share your personal experience. Cause I want to get back into your work and what you, what you do with, with others um, specifically, cause I think it relates in a lot of ways to what we're talking about. Uh, but, but it strikes me that the pressures that you felt as a young person almost like reinforced the like 
individualistic approach to trying to get your way out of it in an interesting way. By that, by that I mean, you felt these external pressures to like to be perfect. And we've talked on the podcast previously about how perfectionism kind of reinforces a lot of like white supremacist ideals. Um, and so you feel that external pressure to be perfect. And in turn, because you're feeling this pressure to be perfect, you put more, pre- one, one puts more pressure on themselves to try to figure everything out on their own, which further isolates themselves, which means that you have to be perfect to, to exist or survive. It just, it creates a lot of like cognitive dissonance and it's kind of making my head spin to think about it right now. And, you know, we're talking about this somebody dealing with this on their own, especially as a young person. So let's, let's segue into how you found your way into helping others like professionals, authors, entrepreneurs, uh, and people, especially who come from historically marginalized identities to not only like help them do the work that they do well, or, or help meet them where they are and their in their journeys, but help them to get recognized and seen for that work. So how did you go from where we are talking about right now, this, this trajectory in your life to ending up in public relations? Could you give us like <laughs> as concise, as, as concise a pathway as you could? Uh, Cause I know we could probably talk about that for another 20 minutes or so. Yeah, it was like most people's career paths, a lot of serendipity and hard work, right? So I had an internship in college with a career coach who was an adjunct professor at my university. And she asked me to help her do PR for her self-published book. So it was there that I learned the skill set of PR. And I segued that into digital marketing. I worked with Natalie Sisson, who I believe was a colleague of ours, mutual colleague of ours. Um, And Eventually started my own marketing agency, but all of my clients kept asking me to pitch podcasts for them. And I thought, this is probably a fad, but I'll give it a go. (laughs) And uh, ended up going with podcast pitching full time, but ran into a problem when I noticed that all of my clients were upper middle class white women who essentially had the same skill set and the same life story. And while they were paying me generously, which I always appreciate, love to be paid generously, I was really bored of telling the same story. And I thought there has to be a way that I can make more of an impact than this because that was always really important to me. And then my mother passed away at the age of 49, unexpectedly, of a heart attack. And she had been, uh, she was an aspiring novelist, a romance novelist, and she had written a trilogy of novels in the Tuscan, the Umbrian countryside and um, had always wished and dreamed of publishing them. And didn't get a chance to. I'd helped her edit them and brainstorm how to build a platform over the years, but obviously her life was cut too short to see this dream come to fruition. And in the aftermath of her death, I kept thinking, man, I have the skill set to help her and people like me and like so many of my clients tell their stories on a larger stage. Um, And I haven't been doing that. And why not? And so within like a nine to 12 month period, I just like (laughs) changed the entire trajectory and mission and presence of my business. And I really had to start on a personal level first, right? I had to assess like, okay, well, what's the diversity like in my personal life? And then how can I scale that up to my business? So it really feels like at every stage of this process or journey, I'm in integrity with the vision I have for where I'm going. 
That was Cher Hale, founder and director of Ginkgo PR. You can listen to the full interviews with Dr. Hanren and Cher Hale by visiting thenewstory.is slash podcasts. You can also click through this podcast episode's show notes and you can find uh, direct links to both of the episodes there. We also now have a curated podcast playlist on Spotify. It's called The New Story Is Podcast Mixtape. You can search for it or find a link in the show notes as well. It's regularly updated with all of our new episodes, and I shuffle it from time to time to give you a unique listening experience. It's perfect for binge listening on long road trips uh, or maybe some international travels of your own. Thank you for celebrating Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month with us here on The New Story Is. We hope you enjoy the month of May. We have new interviews for you all throughout the rest of the month with great guests. We hope you stick around and we hope that you like what you hear. If you think that a friend or family member would enjoy this episode, please share it with them. You can always link people to thenewstory.is slash podcast to help others find and listen to our work. Until next time, dear friend, thank you for listening. Keep storying on. Bye for now.